Hundreds of Taliban inmates escaped from Kandahar prison Monday morning using a tunnel, officials say. NATO forces have already begun a hunt to recapture the 475 prisoners who staged the mass breakout. Officials say that the inmates escaped using a tunnel, which had been dug from a house nearby, into one of the prison wings. Just after 3.30 a.m. Monday morning, the entire political wing of the prison was voided of inmates. These inmates, upon exiting the tunnel, were greeted by three conspirators who had organized a fleet of cars to take these inmates to a secure location. Private U.S. company SpaceX hopes to put an astronaut on Mars within 10 to 20 years. Though they have yet to put a man in space, Elon Musk told the Wall Street Journal on Sunday that we're going all the way to Mars, I think. Best case, 10 years. Worst case, 15 to 20 years. When the shuttle program ends later this year, the United States hopes private industry will be able to fill the gap by creating the next generation of spacecraft to transport astronauts into space. To get to Mars, SpaceX unveiled what they are calling the world's most powerful rocket, the Falcon Heavy, which is designed to lift satellites or spacecraft into orbit that weigh more than 53 metric tons or 117,000 pounds. SpaceX, short for Space Exploration Technologies Corporation, is one of two private companies NASA has contracted to transport cargo to the International Space Station. According to new reports leaked by the whistleblowing site WikiLeaks, the United States released dozens of so-called high-risk detainees from Guantanamo Bay Prison and held more than 150 innocent men for years. The leaked files, called Detainee Assessment Briefs, describes the security intelligence value of the detainees and whether they would be a threat to the U.S. and its allies if released. To date, some 604 inmates have been transferred out of Guantanamo, while 172 remain detained. Of those 172 still detained, 130 of them have been rated as posing a high-risk threat to the U.S. if they were freed without rehabilitation or supervision. However, some documents also show that dozens of detainees were found to be innocent after being held for lengthy periods. At least 150 people were innocent Afghans or Pakistanis, including drivers, farmers, and chefs who were rounded up as a part of a frantic intelligence-gathering operation. A majority of Egyptians believe laws in their country should observe the teachings of Islam's holy book, the Quran, according to the results of an opinion poll by a U.S.-based research center. The poll shows that Egyptians, who have shifted towards religious conservatism for the past 40 years, are open to the inclusion of religious parties in future governments. However, only a minority sympathize with fundamentalist religious parties, according to the results. The poll results were released late Monday and come five months ahead of legislative elections, the first since the February overthrowing of the longtime authoritarian leader Hosni Mubarak. Islamic parties are expected to make a significant showing in the crucial vote, with 50% of people saying it was very important for religious parties to be a part of the future government, and as much as 37% have a very favorable view of the Muslim Brotherhood, the country's largest and best organized Islamic group. Gaddafi's forces have pounded Berber towns in Libya's western mountain region with artillery, rebels and refugees say. An Al Jazeera reporter stationed in the Nafusa mountain range said that rebels' gains have increased since NATO airstrikes, but that Gaddafi's forces are now retaliating. Our town is under constant bombardment by Gaddafi's troops. They are using all means. Everyone is fleeing, Ahmad, a refugee, said while bringing his family out of the mountains and into Tunisia. NATO flattened a building inside Gaddafi's Tripoli compound and what Libyan officials said was a failed attempt on the leader's life. A Libyan spokesman said that Gaddafi was unharmed, and state television showed pictures of him meeting people in a tent, which it said had been taken late Monday. Lacking the money to pay its operating expenses, Mountain View's SETI Institute has pulled the plug on the renowned Allen Telescope Array, a field of radio dishes that scan the skies for signals from extraterrestrial civilizations. In an April 22nd letter to donors, SETI Institute CEO Tom Pearson said that last week the array was put into hibernation, safe but non-functioning, because of inadequate government support. The timing couldn't be worse, say SETI scientists. This spring, astronomers announced that 1,235 new possible planets have been discovered by Kepler, a telescope on a space satellite. They predict that dozens of these planets will be Earth-sized. There is a huge irony, said SETI director Jill Tarter, that at a time when we discover so many planets to look at, we don't have the operating funds to listen. Hello, and welcome to This Week in History. I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. This week in 1803, Thomas Jefferson made the Louisiana Purchase a $15 million investment equal to $219 million in 2010 dollars. The land doubled the size of the nation at the time and now accounts for about a quarter of the U.S. 
It would be over a year before Lewis and Clark set out on their famous expedition to explore the new territory. Back in 1865, John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated President Abraham Lincoln, was killed. He was cornered and shot by Union cavalry troops in Virginia after a 14-day manhunt. In 1953, the first experimental 3D TV broadcast in the U.S. took place. Surprisingly, 3D TV has its origins in the late 1890s, with the first 3D film for the public released in 1922 using those red and blue glasses we're all so familiar with. In 1960, the diplomatic crisis known as the U-2 incident took place. A United States U-2 spy plane was shot down over the Soviet Union amidst the heat of the Cold War, sending the already tense relations between the countries spiraling downward. Today is the 25th anniversary of the horrific nuclear accident at Chernobyl in the Ukraine. A routine systems test at the reactor, followed by a catastrophic combination of events, led to the worst nuclear accident in the world. And now for some birthdays! Our fifth president, James Monroe, was born this week in 1758. He implemented the Monroe Doctrine, which basically told Europe to back off. Ulysses S. Grant, a Union general in the Civil War and the 18th president of the United States of America, was born in 1822. He played a key part in ensuring the Union victory over the Confederate Army. In 1899, Edward Kennedy Ellington, better known as Duke Ellington, was born. He was an important figure in the development of jazz and composed over 1,000 pieces. Charles Richter was born in 1900. He created the Richter Scale. Awesome! Saddam Hussein was born in 1937. He was Iraq's leader from 1979 until his removal from power in 2003, and he was executed in 2006. In 1950, Jay Leno was born. He is a famous late-night talk show host and comedian who got his start after taking over Johnny Carson's role on The Tonight Show. In 1954, Jerry Seinfeld was born. He's famous for his hit television show, Seinfeld, which was a show about nothing. Jessica Alba, famous for her role as the Invisible Girl in Fantastic Four and Fantastic Four 2, was born in 1981. In 1974, Penelope Cruz was born. She's noted for her roles in Volver, Blow, and Vanilla Sky. Well, that's all the knowledge we've got for you this week. I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. Thanks for listening, and keep it historical, Raleigh. I'm joined here in the studio with Taylor Barber from The Technician. Taylor, can you give us a brief on what happened in sports this week? Well, uh, the baseball team was in action, playing against the number one team in the country, Virginia. Traveled down to Charlottesville and uh, went up against them and actually surprised the Cavaliers, giving them only their fourth loss of the season after a rain delay forced the uh, game to be moved back a day from Friday to a doubleheader on Saturday. They uh, caught the uh, Cavs off guard and ended up uh, taking it to them, beating them, I think, 6-2. to two. Uh, Rob Shamra pitched one of the best games of his career at State, pitching seven strong innings, kept them in the game, and one huge inning by the NC State in the sixth inning when they scored all six runs, uh, really put them over the top there and gave them a chance to uh, just upset the Cavs, like I said, and give them that fourth loss of the season, which is an unbelievable stat. Um, they ended up losing the series, dropped the next two games, uh, played them very close, though. I mean, the baseball team, I think they lost the second game of on Saturday, three to one, lost the final game seven to six. Just came a run short of a comeback, but I mean, in general, the the team's playing really well. After that sweep, it uh, came back from a sweep against Miami. Uh, lost all three games down in Coral Gables, and has really battled back these last two weeks. Uh, swept Carolina in a three-game series at the time when Carolina was number five in the country, and then played well against Virginia. You, you're mad you didn't take the series, but you played them up tight. You played them very close. So it's some positives to look forward to, especially as they uh, kind of go into the lull, I guess you could say, the ACC not playing as, the, as good of teams. They can take care of business, uh, have a chance for a regional bid. So what else has happened this past weekend in sports? Um, both uh, We had a lot of action, actually. All ACC tournaments uh, – Track and field, men's golf, uh, men's and women's tennis were both in action. Men's and women's tennis, I'll start there. They uh, they t- uh, played in their tournament here in Cary. Men didn't fare, ugh, didn't fare too well. They uh, couldn't really put it together. They had a rough season, uh, lost a couple close ones. They ended up losing the first round. However, the women who have played some, had played a lot better in non-conference play than conference play. Ended up winning the first round against Virginia Tech and came very close, only lost by a set to upsetting the number one team in the country, uh, Duke. So they dropped that, but they uh, they should still have a few people that uh, end up getting to go to NCAAs. They have one of the best duos uh, for doubles in the nation. So they, uh, they'll still have uh, send a few people out. Their seasons will continue. In terms of men's golf, they had a uh, – 
It's the, it's the same it's been all season. They have two solid players in Albin Choi and Mitchell Sutton who are on a team. I mean, if you put a good supporting cast around them, this team could win. The ACC could be top five in the country. However, they just don't have that supporting the three, four, five players. And Sutton and Choi are just unable to uh, just keep that team afloat. I think they finished seventh, had a disappointing first round, were never able to really recover on that. But I mean, still the team's pretty young. Sutton's only a sophomore. Choi is just a freshman, so there'll be a good chance for them to kind of bounce back uh, next season. So NC State recently hired a new basketball coach. What are your thoughts on that? I think from where taking us back to, I guess, that Monday night where Debbie Al kind of sent, I don't know if you got the letter, sent the kind of depressing email to all Wolfpack Club members kind of saying, we're doing what we can, but it doesn't sound very good to where she ended up the next day ecstatic at hiring Mark Godfrey, the former Alabama uh, head coach. I mean, I think for what it seemed like the position we were in is a great hire. Um I think just looking at it, he's the fourth in terms of coaches taking teams to the NCAA tournament. He's uh, fourth in the ACC just coming in from his tenure at Alabama, um, only behind Roy Williams, uh, Coach K, and uh, Gary Williams up in Maryland. So, I mean, he has that experience. He has that ability. He took Alabama to an Elite Eight. He's taken them to, I think, six NCAA tournament appearances. He had him at number one in the country at one point. So he has that experience. Uh, the question remains still up in the air if he's going to get all those players that that huge talented freshman class that Lowe brought in to return. Um, I know C.J. Leslie elected not to enter the draft uh, Sunday. He had to have his name in by Sunday, I think, at like 12.59 or something like that, or 11.59, and elected not to do that. So therefore he hopefully, uh, barring any transfers, which I can't see him doing just because he'll probably leave after next year, uh, Leslie should be back, and that gives him a good – a good supporting cast already returning three starters, Leslie, Scott Wood, um, Lorenzo Brown. Mix in Richard Howe, the continued development of Deshaun Painter, uh, Jordan Vandenberg. You're going to have a good chance for the, uh, Godfrey to come in and at least be competitive in the ACC. Um, I know for that, uh, Carolina's going to be a great team next year. They're, they're probably going to be the odds-on favorite to win the national title, but I think we have a really good chance to be competitive next year and uh, field a good squad. All right, Taylor, thanks for coming in and talking to us. We appreciate it. No problem. Talk to you guys later. Top environmentalists and leaders from the scientific community are organizing events around the world from Queensland, Australia to Ajmer, India, to make April 29th Save the Frogs Day. North Carolina, well-respected by amphibian enthusiasts everywhere due to its rich frog and salamander population, needed a leader with proven courage, inspiring confidence, and sound character to pick up the Save the Frogs banner. It needed the best. The best cookie salesperson for the Girl Scouts of America in Wake County for the past three years, Rachel Hopkins. Massive 40-foot petition in tow, Rachel took a break from the 7th grade to come by WKNC Studios to talk about Save the Frogs and some of the dangers facing today's amphibians. Thank you for joining us, Rachel. Please provide a little bit of background on Save the Frogs. Well, Save the Frogs Day was originally declared by the scientific community, and then Kerry Krager decided to uh, make this go national. And so this has been dedicated to raising awareness and celebrating amphibians. Dr. Carrie Krager was the founder of Save the Frogs, and Save the Frogs was America's first and only nonprofit public organization dedicated to raising awareness about our declining amphibian population and promoting amphibian awareness. How did you get involved with Save the Frogs? I'm doing my Girl Scout Silver Award about raising awareness in the declining amphibian population. The Girl Scout Silver Award is a leadership award for scouts completing a self and community improvement project. How has their foundation of courage, confidence, and character come into play with your project? It took courage to start a project that involved frogs, as frogs are not the most uh, popular um, amphibian that you see every day. But I had a lot of confidence in myself that I could do this, as I've been the top cookie seller in Wake County for the past three years, you know. This kind of made me feel like if I can do this, I can help save the frogs. And it was um, really thanks to my character that really pushed me to do this. If, you know, if I had uh, been even a little bit squeamish about frogs, I probably wouldn't be doing my silver award about frogs and helping save them now. So you're not squeamish, but what do you think of frogs? I think frogs are very sweet. They're very helpful to our environment as a whole. And... I've been interested in frogs ever since I was really little, and we've had a great time 
uh, with the frogs. We have a pet frog, too, and we have a lot of fun with her. Her name's Spritzy. She's a white, stumpy tree frog. Well, besides for being sweet and tree frogs having a pleasant song, how else are frogs part of a healthy ecosystem? Frogs are bioindicators because their skin is so permeable. Frogs breathe and they drink through their skin, and they can't decide what goes in or what comes out um, of their skin. And so the water they absorb is completely up to the natural environment around them. And so if something upsets the balance of life, frogs, they'll be the first to feel that as they live in the water. And the water is like one of the first things that uh, humans directly affect. If there are any pollutants in the water, they'll, frogs will be the first to feel that. They, if any frogs numbers start dying off, then we know that there's something wrong in the environment. They're known as um, keystone species or bioindicators. Because they're right in the middle of the food chain, they are right in the middle of the web of life, if you take my meaning. You've been trying to save frogs far longer than you began your silver project. Tell me your first memory involving frogs. Uh, my earliest memory would probably be going up to our local pool and with my little siblings and rescuing frogs from the chlorine in our pool, which is toxic to frogs. So we'd bring them home, we'd take pictures of them, and then we'd let the frogs go in our creek in the back and the toads in the garden. What have you been learning through your interactions with Save the Frogs? One of the uh, big things that I learned through interacting with Save the Frogs was how endangered frogs were. I also learned that frogs happen to be the first vertebrates to leave the ocean, and they had been around since before the dinosaurs. And most frogs are decreasing solely to human activity. And so there's really something big that we can do to stop the ever-decreasing amphibian populations. And how big is the problem? It's pretty big. About 250 species of amphibians have gone extinct since 1980, and 2,000 species of frogs are endangered and on the IUCN red list for endangered plants and animals. Most frogs will naturally go extinct at a rate of one every 250 years. So as this is a really big heads up to our environment and to scientists who are studying the subject, that something is not normal in an environment and we need to make change. The tangible goal for your project is to get the governor's office to declare April 29th Save the Frogs Day. What's involved with that? First, we have to get um, people to sign our petition. We have to uh, get a uh, request form into the governor. We're going to schedule a day to meet, and we're going to bring it in, and we're going to talk about Save the Frogs and generate some interest and hopefully get Save the Frogs a uh, recognized date in North Carolina. How long have you been working on the petition? I think it got started in about the sixth grade. First thing I did was trying to get um, people to sign it to raise awareness because when I asked them to sign it, they'd also ask me why. So I could tell them about what was happening to frogs and help raise awareness that way. Whenever we go places now, we normally bring our petition with us. When we had a booth at the Museum of Natural Sciences, we brought the petition with us, and it was on two floors down, and people could sign it there. We had it at Frog Fest, and it's about 40 feet long now, and it's covered with signatures. Before the interview, you were asking me some trivia questions about state symbols, and you asked me what the state amphibian is, and I can't answer you. What is it? Well, North Carolina actually doesn't have state amphibian. We have um, other state symbols. We have a mammal, a rock, a tree, a flower, but we don't have a state amphibian. And so the choices have been polled. People have decided to do a um, frog, a state frog and a state salamander instead of um, one or the other. And so the votes were for the frog, the pine barrens tree frog, and the marbled salamander. Where do you think that uh, we might be able to get to get behind that and help get a state amphibian? What are some simple steps that people can do to help protect North Carolina's frogs? They cannot use um, harmful pesticides. They shouldn't eat frog legs. You definitely should not purchase wild-caught amphibians because that reduces the local population. And if you do find a frog in your backyard... Uh, don't take it as a pet because that will reduce their um, local population as well. Uh, you should really drive slowly on rainy nights because that's mostly where frogs and toads are out. And they're not really fast compared to an approaching car. Most of them will get hit. Uh, so just give them some time to move. You should turn off the tap when you're uh, brushing your teeth or washing your hands. You don't want to waste uh, necessary water. You should vote for the environment whenever possible and help save the frogs that way. You should really reduce, reuse, and recycle, in, especially in that order. Speaking of recycling, one of the things that you're organizing at your school, Ravenscroft, this week is a battery drive for Save the Frogs Day. Why is battery recycling important? Well, batteries contain things in them such as mercury and nickel. And if you dump those in your local landfill, then those will go straight to the frogs whenever it rains or something like that. And so that causes frog mutations. 
and it also weakens their immune systems and makes them more susceptible to diseases such as chytrid. Um, chytrid or chytridiomycosis is a fungal disease that attacks the keratin in a frog's skin. And when the frog feels that infection, it builds up more skin in an effort to drive the fungus out and eventually ends up suffocating itself. Selling Girl Scout cookies has given you a lot of ends for starting conversations about saving North Carolina's frogs. If Governor Purdue was buying Girl Scout cookies from you right now, what would you say to her? Well, I would tell her that Save the Frogs is working to promote amphibian conservation. I would tell her how endangered frogs were and that if she made Save the Frogs Day um, recognized in North Carolina, that North Carolina would be the, the third state in this, as California and Virginia have already declared it such. So North Carolina would not be alone in our quest to uh, pursue equal rights for frogs. To follow Rachel's efforts to help save the frogs and for more information, you can go to www.savethefrogs.com or www.herpsofnc.org. That's www.herpsofnc.org. If you or someone you know is making a difference in the community, shoot me an email, jacob at wknc.org, and let's get a conversation started. For WKNC's Eye on the Triangle, I'm Jacob Downey. The recent outbreaks of green revolutions across North Africa and the Arab world have changed people's perspectives on the ideas of free speech and self-determination. Although many have taken up arms in Libya and protesters stormed the streets of Cairo, Tunis, Damascus, Manama, the capital of Bahrain, and Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, students across North Carolina are looking at different methods to combat oppression and lack of human rights in this area of the world. And they're doing it through poetry. I met with Muslim Student Association President and Junior at NC State, Muhammad Musa, to talk more about a new project he is starting. My name is uh, Muhammad Musa. Um, I'm the president of the Muslim Student Association, but I'm also a part of this uh, new project called Poetic Portraits of a Revolution. Uh, basically, this project aims to um, send four artists from North Carolina to Egypt and Tunisia for two months this summer. Uh, we have two nationally recognized poets as a part of the team, a professional photographer, and I'll be acting as the uh, uh, translator and interpreter, uh, as well as the spoken word artists that, are, that we're just going to. Uh, basically, what we want to do is, is document the stories that aren't being told through photography, uh, videography, spoken word, and interviews. And so you're going to be translating. You speak Arabic. Um, where are you from? So originally, I'm, I'm Lib- my parents are Lebanese. I was born in Columbus, Georgia to Lebanese parents. I've hopped around back and forth uh, between the States and Lebanon, but I've lived there about half my life. Okay, wow. How did you hear about this event, and what sparked you to really get involved? Yeah, so I've been always interested in like you know creative things, whether it's just creative writing or, or poetry. Uh, and when I got into the poetry scene here in North Carolina, I started going to open mics and slams. Um, and then I, I met up with Will and Kane, who are the two uh, the two poets on, on the project. Um, and then through that, Kane is always or Will, sorry, has always like had interests in, in you know um, just North Africa and and the Palestinian issue and things like that. So when he when he saw these things going on, he always wanted to do a North Africa trip. But when he found out about like the revolutions that are going on, he talked to Kane to sort of set something up. And my name popped up because they knew I spoke Arabic and I was a poet. And so um, they came up to me and, and we sort of got together. And I knew Samir, who's our photographer. And so we just sort of created this, you know, uh, this team and we started rolling. This was about a month ago or so that, that when Samir came on. February 1st, 1960. Greensboro. A reminder that change doesn't start in our the three poets and their photographer Samir met in Riddick Hall Monday night for an open mic event to promote the project. Kane Smego, a poet and student at UNC Chapel Hill, recited a piece on the civil rights movement relating that struggle to the one that he will soon document. Somewhere off in the clouds, but they learn to fly without ever leaving the ground. How beautiful. 
with all the turbulence and just uncertainty going on, how do you feel about this? And well, when are you first? When are you gonna get there? And um, what's kind of going on right now? What, what, how are you feeling? Yeah, so um, hopefully we're gonna be leaving the first or second week of June, going to Tunisia first is the plan, and then uh, spending a month there and another month in Egypt. Things are still unstable, but uh, you know, in the sense most of most of the turbulence has, has ended for the most part. Uh, you know, there's still like. Uh, some struggles in terms of getting political stability and things like that. But we really feel that this issue is so time-sensitive that it's crucial for us to sort of document it now while things are still moving and sort of get the human element behind this movement towards, like people's movement towards self-determination. So that's what we want to focus on and, and sort of, we, we feel like it is time-sensitive. You know, it, it might not be easy and it might not be like the safest thing, but we really still want to help out as much as we can through like documenting this really, really great historic moment. Wow. And so it seems like this moment has been based around the ability or the inability to express oneself, uh, whether it be poetically, uh, personally, or politically. So what's the significance of expression, freedom of expression for you? And um, how does this open mic event symbolize that? Yeah, I think it's really important for people to sort of express their views based upon what they're feeling or what they believe in um, or just... In, in general um, and like you said it's on, on so many different levels so it's really important for us I mean if we're doing workshops over there and sort of want to empower people in terms of poetry workshops but it's also like we want to because because we have an audience here as well and because we're able to like write poetry and, and, and get on you know radio segments and stuff like that we want to sort of raise awareness about what's going down there over here and, and learn from their move towards self-determination to apply it in our communities here as well. So it's, it's, there's a lot of, lot of different levels on it, whether it's us learning from them, us helping them out, and us just spreading word about it over here. Okay, one last question. What's the significance of poetry uh, in the Arabic language? So poetry, I mean, originally, like, poetry was all about, like, it was all about poetry. Uh, poetry, like, if you're a good poet, that, you know, you're a boss, you're very respected and things like that. And even to this day, like, poetry is something that's very significant to, to you know, the Arab culture. Um, but poetry in general is just something so powerful that you can move someone to, to um, feel differently about something or to learn something new through poetry is something very powerful. And just using that to, to document this historic moment is, is, you know, we feel like, We'd be honored to be able to participate in something like that. You can contact Mohammed Musa and his team at Poetic Portraits of a Revolution at ppr2011.com. That is ppr2011.com. And you can also contact them by email at pprcontact at gmail.com. Many say that actions speak louder than words. Musa said to take action through words. Check out their website for more poetry and more information about their travels. I'm Mark Herring, and you're listening to Eye on the Triangle. Have a good evening, and salam alaikum. My name is Mohammed Musa. Uh, just uh, started in the poetry scene recently in uh, Raleigh, Chapel Hill, Durham area. So I just wanted to share a couple pieces. This first one is called We Interrupt This Broadcast. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a revolution. It was found in a tin time capsule tucked away under the bed right next to nostalgia, old photographs, and what ancestors said. Have you ever inhaled the words of a grandmother as she watches all the pain unfold on TV screens where every broadcast is the same? Politicians spewing nonsense, riot police taking aim, she curses oppression as her memories come out to play their games. Flashback. Flashback to her only son. And how they took him away. No money to buy bread and no receipts to return the shame of not having a country that would listen to what the people say. Have you ever inhaled the calamities in her hands? 
It chokes like tear gas and stings like police brutality in a hollow shell of your own land. So the people take to the streets, gripping their flags and their discontent. Today there is no need to ask where the freedom fighters went. And they're fine with your water cannons because they asked for a clean slate, they tell tyrants, to get in their cars and have the wheels rotate because this is a revolution. A turn in the book of history, ready to write new stages. I just wish there wasn't so much blood on these pages. And I think of how it's easy to empower millions if you give them purpose because you get tired when they convince you that your existence is worthless. And I apologize for interrupting this broadcast. But the viewers are asleep. They're told they have no purpose and their opinions are theirs to keep. Ideas are called their two cents. So they think that thoughts are cheap. An oppressor doesn't have to be a dictator sitting in a throne. It can be a mindset that's been planted to alter your comfort zone. So it becomes okay for one human to treat 80 million as his own. Okay for citizens to only see what the government has shown. But some have begun to fight back. With spirits that refuse to break, there are screams asking for a better life, and these screams can make a palace shake. Some have begun to wake up. So when the ground underneath your feet starts to change, and barbed wire comes undone, understand where that's coming from. But till then, I'll return you to your normal programming. The second one is called uh, Jiddi Abu Ali. I want my grave to be just like my grandfather's, simple. Surrounded with goodbyes that hold memories of laughs and cries along with prayers from faded eyes and drenched with the satisfaction that he made something of his time, my grandfather was a different person. You could see history in the smile he had and the dents of his life got him pretty bad, you'd call them wrinkles. I guess he used to collect them when for every struggle he survived, inspect them, take the lessons they scream, and inject them when for every friend that died and left him, and some for the wars. Where people were forced to line up against walls where they learned silence had a heartbeat. Asked to have a staring contest with concrete feet shuffle. Bullet points, bullet points, bullet point. I try to list everything he went through, but it's tough. And so now I reminisce, but not nearly enough about the taxi cab driver who taught me lessons I didn't mean to forget. Locked up in the back of my mind in a place I can't detect, I reflect on memories he gave me that I sprinkled on his grave. Tears aren't meant to be that heavy. Doctors said he should have died years back. But Grandpa had his tricks, so he lived his life pretending that he was never sick, but death lingered in his calendar waiting to choose its pick until finally. He was in the backseat of a car, his soul seeping through the cracks, the hospital too far, fear, sweat, and steering wheel intertwined under my uncle's hands. I don't understand where he got the strength to drive as best he can while that man, his dad, reached the end of his lifespan. I bet that memory is in my uncle's pocket deep enough for others not to see, but close enough for him to peek at when he needs a dose of reality. I wonder what types of nightmares he must have. You see, I've been to the graveyard, and I've seen the stories etched in the eyes of people that he knew who would gracefully sketch images of my grandpa helping them in one way or another. His book was written in ink of gold, so it's tough for me to close the cover. And as my own pages start to flip too quick, Till there are no more words to show, and when death taps at my shoulder telling me I have to go, let them know that I want my grave to be just like my grandfather's so they look bothered and offer a few words of advice. When you're dead, you can't be a shopper, looking around the market for a grave of your choice. So while you've still got breath, wire voltage in your voice. Make every step meaningful, cause you won't get a second chance and glance back at times lost. Then grab your future with your hands and mold it into something you want when it's all said and done. You see, when I'm mixed with dirt like grandfather, like grandson, It'll be too late to ask for a burial the way I think is right So a question is stapled in my mind And tombstones make it a bit too tight It whispers and yells at the same time What do you want your grave to look like? This next one is called Villain He was raised by Saturday morning cartoons Posters from TV shows enveloped his room Because he wanted to be the villain the TV said, 
If you didn't think like the heroes do, you were different. Change your mind, because they'll be coming after you. Your free thinking has expired, and there's no way to clicker in you. They'll call you evil and enemies. Dark side and doomsday, too. And he loved it. So he was the loner. Picked on at school where he had no headquarters. Not welcome in any group. There were lines and clear borders. The kids treated him like he had every type of disorder. He was like a mutant. So he wanted to rule his own island like Magneto did, where he could run away from all those mean school kids, but even he could tell that somehow he deserved better than this. But at home, his dad reminded him that heroes don't exist. So the only option was to be heartless to survive, because his dad would beat him like a drum every single time, over and over and over again, never seeing the repercussions. Back then, his son was just a Dr. Jekyll, who knew he had to hide till he could become a villain strong enough to deprive happiness from those who never helped him out or even tried. But till that time came, he had to deal with what he got. He contemplated daddy's hatred, stayed up at night and thought, why was Batman so ungrateful that his parents were shot? Suck it up, Bruce Wayne. You're better off this way. And for some reason, he could never connect with Superman. Though he too felt the S carved in his chest, it stood for suffering a scar that he did his best to hide behind his emotion-proof vest so he buried concepts of love that his dad put to rest and ideas of friendship his school didn't express and found wisdom. He found wisdom in a ballpoint pressed to the suicide note on his desk he signed it. Let the teardrops dry and define it, gave up on happiness he knew he'd never find it. And so he walked away from a home he couldn't bear, and passed the school that let him taste the meaning of despair. He jumped off the bridge. He wasn't even scared, because he was a villain now. He was a villain now. He killed every chance for his life to be repaired, and you had all those kids who made fun of him everywhere, and his father sitting at home in his chair without a care, the cigarette smoke filling the air. So who do you think is the real villain? Today's topic, high fructose corn syrup. If you consume anything that makes your sweet tooth jump for joy, I'll bet high fructose corn syrup is responsible. The reason I find this corn byproduct so interesting is because of all the press it's been receiving recently. Medical professionals, politicians, farmers, and the media have all contributed to the controversy. What are the issues? Many people believe that high fructose corn syrup is responsible for our nation's overweight populace. Also, soft drink companies and corn producers are being targeted for funding biased research on the effects of high fructose corn syrup on the body. There are many platforms for the debate over this product, but the primary issue is whether or not the product is responsible for the number of obese people we have in America and the various health risks associated with obesity. The answer is no. High fructose corn syrup certainly isn't helping, but it's not the source of all of our problems, which is how it's been portrayed by many. Before I give you the 411 on why fructose corn syrup is so prominent in most of the products we consume, and a brief chemistry lesson as to what the stuff really is, I want to give you my theory as to why a huge portion of America is morbidly obese. I call it a theory, but what it really is, is the simplest concept unknown to man. I don't blame sugary or fatty foods for making Betty Sue overweight. There's in fact one action solely responsible for that. Overeating. Here's the simple concept, evidently unknown to man. If you are very active, you need more food. If you're not, you need less food. If you're thinking, well, hey, Kyle, that's a no-brainer, then you've got this whole eating thing figured out. However, this concept must be difficult because a third of you are at least 20% heavier than you should be, a.k.a. obese. And a lot of you come close to that. So I'm going to illustrate how to eat using myself as an example. Yesterday, I rode my bike about 12 miles, took the dog for a run, and walked from class to class. I therefore needed to consume a lot to compensate. So to give you an idea, for breakfast... I had four eggs with a lot of cheese and three bowls of cereal with coconut milk. Now let's say it's rainy outside and I don't feel like riding to school or doing any exercise at all. So I drive my car and ride the bus around school and take a nap. What do I eat for breakfast that morning? 
I eat something light because I do not need that huge caloric intake, and I continue that trend throughout the day. But lately, it's been great outside, so every day I eat large portions of foods like cheese, pork, dark chocolate, and peanut butter. In fact, I recently baked and ate a whole cheesecake in one day. I am 190 pounds with about 8% body fat. Do I have super genes? No, of course not. I'm just being smart about keeping the amount of calories I consume balanced with how many I utilize. But wait, these people that say high fructose corn syrup makes you fat used real science to support their arguments. Here's where the chemistry comes in. Carbohydrates come in the form of monosaccharides. If we're talking about sugar, then glucose and fructose are the key players. Plain old table sugar is a disaccharide that is made from the combination of glucose and fructose to form the more complex sucrose. High fructose corn syrup undergoes a very unnatural process, which I urge you to look up because it will make you never want to eat it again, but results in a nearly identical product. The only real difference is that the fructose and glucose molecules do not bond and therefore do not crystallize. A lot of products have just regular corn syrup, whereas some products have high fructose corn syrup. What's the difference? Well, fructose is sweeter than glucose, and because of corn syrup's chemical structure, it can be altered to vary sweetness level. The amount of fructose in high fructose corn syrup is about 55%, making it incredibly sweet whereas regular corn syrup typically has about 44% fructose. Soft drinks are a good example of something that uses high fructose corn syrup, and regular corn syrup can be used to make things like hard candies. So all of these scientists have been hired to figure out if high fructose corn syrup is bad for you. And aside from just being a concentrated form of empty calories, there hasn't been any hard evidence to prove it's any worse for you than regular table sugar. I myself prefer unprocessed foods, and would love to hear that it makes your arms fall off or something so that we can get rid of it, but that isn't the case. So all of this information may press us to ask the question, why don't we use just sugar from the sugar cane? The answer is because it grows very well in a lot of places, but not in the U.S. But you know what grows really well here? Corn. And because there are all kinds of crazy tariffs and extra paperwork required to move this stuff around, High fructose corn syrup is here to stay because it is really cheap and sugarcane is not. To leave you with one last thought, if you drink a Coke in the U.S., it's going to be full of high fructose corn syrup. If you travel down to Brazil or virtually anywhere else, your Coke is going to be made from sugar from a sugarcane. For Eye on the Triangle, I am Kyle Jones. Last spring, Eye on the Triangle spoke with Future Kings of Noah frontman Shane Miel and his wife Rebecca about a benefit being held in their honor to raise funds for their medical expenses related to Shane's battle with cancer and to launch a trust fund called Friends with Benefits to help out musicians in the future who are either uninsured or facing unexpected medical emergencies. Shane, during our discussion, expressed concern that his health battle would not leave him with the requisite energy needed to enjoy seeing his friends play. I hope that my energy keeps up and that I can be out there as much as possible. This time out, he's hoping that it's his friends and fans who have been saving their energy because on May the 7th, out in Durham at the Motor Co., the future kings of nowhere are back. Shane, along with his collaborator and future kings of nowhere bass player, Dan Kinney, are here to catch us up to speed on the reunion, Shane's health, and the group's future. To be fair, it's been a while. There might be people out of the loop. What is the Future Kings of Nowhere? Uh, we are a band. Playing the music and all that. Uh, we, we do. Um, we sort of started as uh, an acoustic punk band, uh, have moved a little bit away from that. Our, uh, our newer stuff is, is all a little bit slower. We're starting to add some more electric elements. The Bob Dylan fans will call us Judas uh, as we play. It'll be fun. When is the last time the Future Kings of Nowhere have played together? We have not played since uh, Troika in 2009. So that was uh, November of 2009. I had already moved to New York. I came down for about a week before the show and we practiced and got ready. Um, and I was uh, I was so sick that week. Uh, I had this horrible cough and, and all of the, um, the symptoms of the cancer were... Uh, 
rearing their ugly heads pretty seriously by that point. I wasn't sleeping. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of amazed I made it through that show at all, looking back. <laughs> and you recently had a major announcement about the cancers in your chest and brain. Uh, I recently got the, the clean bill of health from my doctors. They said that the latest scans showed no sign of cancer. And, you know, considering where I was when this started, uh, it, it really was unexpected and, and kind of a miracle. For Dan, how does it feel to have the band back together? Uh, I think it's great. I had been out of the loop for a little while, and uh, and I'm very glad to be back with Shane making music again, and uh, very excited about recording an album after uh, you know after we get the show over with, we'll switch into recording mode, and uh, yeah, very very excited about it. The band's getting back together on the evening of May the seventh at the Motorco in Durham. Why that venue? Well, we're we're really excited to be there because for for a number of reasons. One, we love Chris Tamplin who opened it. He's always been really good to us out at Tiernanog, and uh, um, we we also think the the Websters are great. That's Duncan's parents, Duncan from Hammer and More the Fingers. It's the first serious club in Durham, and Durham has needed something like that for a while. Completing the the triangle of the Cat's Cradle and the Poor House. And now something in Durham. How long have you been practicing to play together again? We started in January. We're going for like a a once a week sort of schedule. Practices got canceled, you know, all the time because people were busy or sick or whatever. But uh, yeah, so it's been about five months of practice leading up to this. At first I thought that was way too soon to start practicing, but... Uh, it turns out that is exactly <laughs> when we should have started yeah. <laughs> to get ready. We are we are sliding into home base, as it were. <laughs> How are things going on Friends with Benefits, the charity you set up last year to help with uninsured and underinsured musicians? We we raised a decent amount of money last year and have decided to take that and try to be legit and, and get our nonprofit status and set up a board. And Rebecca and I both learned a lot of lessons uh, when we did Bull City Headquarters. Uh, we didn't do anything by the books then. Uh, and that sort of in retrospect was a bit of a mistake. It wasn't a horrible mistake by any means. So we're in the process of that, trying to get all the behind the scenes work uh, together right now. What about your bandmates? Are they all enjoying being back? Yes. I think everybody is having a good time. We have uh, Ben Carr, who plays with Last Year's Men, who is playing guitar. Mike Hacker on drums and Allison Zirkel on the uh, on the keys mm-hmm. and uh, all kind of the extended Future Kings family. Allison and Mike and I used to play together uh, over a decade ago in another band, so it's fun reconnecting with her and getting to do it again. Um, she said to say hi and that she's having fun, and it's just like old times, except we all have normal haircuts now. <laughs> one of the one of the things I'm really excited about with this show is. We have a special guest coming down from Maryland to play trumpet with us. And he's a he's an older gentleman, he's a friend of mine, who is a he teaches trumpet and plays in the symphony up there and, and all these things. And uh while I was up there practicing with him, he said, Oh, it's you know, it's really good to be playing with a rock band again. I'm really excited about that. And and so I said, Carl, who who did who have you played with? You know, what rock bands? And uh he started listing some some really famous people. He, he said uh, Roger Daltrey and the Moody Blues, and I was like, "Oh, that's pretty cool." And then he said Frank Sinatra, Otis Redding, and James Brown, <laughs> and my jaw just hit the floor. Uh, so that's that's something exciting that people can look forward to is a uh, uh, a very famous musician playing with us. <laughs> what impact has your health struggle and then coming together as a band had on how you approach making music? That is, that's a good question. It might be part of the reason for that slowdown that, that that we're experiencing. I've wanted a lot to write about the cancer experience, and it's been really hard to do. Um, it's such a big thing to try to put into words. Um, we do have a song uh, that we're that we're going to debut at the May seventh show. It's actually what we're going to close the set with, and it's a a three part song. Uh, uh, much more ambitious than anything that we've ever tried that we're really excited about. Two parts was the maximum before. <laughs>
So there you have it. Future Kings of Nowhere back stronger than before at Motorco on May 7th with Wig Report and Hammer No More the Fingers. For On the Triangle, I'm Jacob Downey with a heartfelt sentiment for the Future Kings of Nowhere. Welcome back. We've missed you. I am Mark Herring, and on Monday, I went around the NC State campus asking people what exactly was bothering them that day, and I was confronted with many different views. Here are some I would like to share. Okay, could you introduce yourself and explain what is upsetting you? Hi, my name is Jay Tucker. I'm a biochemistry major at NC State. And what has upset me this week is the gym rush. How everyone right before spring break wants to go to the gym and get big or get lean and mean. But as soon as it's over, no one. You don't see anyone. If you want a healthy lifestyle, be like maintain. Go to the gym every day. Go for it. Don't don't stop just for the ladies. Just go. Thank you. All right. Can you uh, introduce yourself and explain what is upsetting you? Okay. So my name is Jill Miller, and I am um, a senior in animal science. And I am just so upset about the amount of work I have right now because I'm working. I have uh, tons of classes. You uh, looking forward to spring break? Very much so. What are you doing? Uh, relaxing. How much sleep are you going to get? Um, hopefully a lot. Like how many hours? Maybe like 12 a night. That would be really nice. I'm in the library because I'm waiting for my next class to start, and I'd really much rather go home than sit here and read psychology, um, even though I do love psychology. It's just the Monday before spring break, and I'm ready to get this week over with, but it just started, and the day's not even halfway over. And you mentioned that you have something waiting for you, anticipating your return after spring break? I have an organic chemistry test the first day back after spring break, and it's my first class. And so that's how I'll be spending my spring break this year. Studying? Absolutely. Celebrating? Absolutely. (laughs) Well, that sounds delightful. Now, just by the way, could you introduce yourself and explain what you study? I um, am studying human biology with a minor in psychology. Maura. Thanks, Maura. You're welcome. Thank you. My name is Shay McEntee, and one pet peeve I have is a number of students are turning in their homework assignments handwritten, and I have to decipher their handwriting. What are these assignments for? There's some mathematical proofs. Um, This is for a computer science class. So, you know, it's, it's, it makes grading take a lot longer. <laughs> if you could confront these students, how would you confront them? Type it or I'm going to take away your grades. All right, could you introduce yourself and explain what's bothering you today? Um, my name is Safwad Ibrahim, and what's bothering me is all these corrupt dictators who can't seem to understand that their people don't want them anymore. I mean, it took Mubarak like almost a month to get out of power. And even now, I wonder if he even realizes that his people don't like him. And now you have Gaddafi, who's so blinded by his power and thinks his people trust him, that he's convinced that the people revolting against him are foreign foreign influence, as if all those millions of people are just like American agents or something. That's what's bothering me right now. All right, so it seems like there's a trend of people getting upset about their dictators. Who's next? Um, I would probably say that Jordan's next, King Abdullah. I think, I think especially if Libya falls, I think they'll definitely, Jordan will definitely get inspired by them.